Hello and welcome to the Green Book Commentaries. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. Episode 9, Neuroanatomy 101. We were talking about human energy in our last episode, what exactly it is and how it works in the human body. Human energy, what chiropractors call innate intelligence, is an immaterial energy that governs the functions of every cell and every living creature. Innate intelligence uses the brain as the power generator, creating the electrical energy to supply the body. This energy travels down the spinal cord and out through its periphery nerves, innervating otherwise dead matter to life. During this episode, BJ Palmer is going to take us back to school. Do you remember your level of excitement for studying the stimulating subject of neuroanatomy? Well, top off your coffee cup because the next two episodes will be all about better understanding the sympathetic nervous system. We begin our reading in volume 25, page 61. Sympathetic Nervous System and Reflex Action Before going into the sympathetic nervous system and reflex action, let us back up to what medicine is. Medicine is a material science. Medicine has no philosophy because that goes into the realm of the abstract. Medicine is not an art because it is empiric and arbitrary. Notwithstanding, medicine uses immaterialities to prove materialities. They still deny its existence with human bodies. Kirk, in his Handbook of Physiology, revised by W.D. Halliburton, M.D., in the preface says, The question arises, however, is there anything else? Are there any other laws than those of physics and chemistry to be reckoned with? Is there, for instance, such a thing as vital force? It may be frankly admitted that physiologists at present are not able to explain all vital phenomena by the laws of the physical world. But as knowledge increases, it is more and more abundantly shown that the supposition of any special or vital force is unnecessary. And it should be distinctly recognized that when in future pages it is necessary to allude to vital action, it is not because we believe in any specific vital energy, but merely because the phrase is convenient is a convenient one for expressing something that we do not fully understand, something that cannot at present be brought into line with the physical and chemical forces that operate in the inorganic world. They use electricity, which is an abstract, to prove their concrete. Medicine consists of the things they can prove, meaning physical or material proof, things they can take into a material lab and prove materially, things like chemistry and physics. Two kinds of proof. Physical. A chunk of iron weighs two pounds. Abstract. Electricity or thought that meets no tests of physics. They deny thought, yet use it. They deny mind, yet use it to deny it. They deny mental impulse, yet could not live without it. They deny nerve force, yet use it when they deny it. They become baffled, run into phenomena, when they deny existence of a reality. How do they account for what nerve force does when they deny there is a nerve force? 
Let us study evidence and see how they explain the unexplainable. Let me quote the last Dunglison's Medical Dictionary, which is a standard in every college. In speaking of this system, he says, sympathetic depending on sympathy. Sympathetic affections of the organs are those morbid phenomena that supervene without any morbific cause. Page 76 through 77, The Science of Chiropractic, Volume 2, 1917 by B.J. Palmer. Sympathy, Dunglison's, 23rd edition, page 1082, says, Sympathy, connection existing between the action of two or more organs, more or less distant from each other, so that affection of the first is transmitted secondarily to the others, or to one of the others, by means unknown. Page 77, The Science of Chiropractic, Volume 2. 1917, by B.J. Palmer. Dunglison says, The great sympathetic is a distinct nervous system, supplying the organs of involuntary motion. For although communicating with both brain and spinal marrow, it does not seem to be immediately under the influence of either. Its special functions are not yet well understood. Page 77, The Science of Chiropractic. Volume 2, 1917, by B.J. Palmer. Cunningham's Textbook of Anatomy, page 702. In speaking of the sympathetic nervous system, says, The sympathetic nervous system consists of a pair of elongated cords extending from the base of the skull to the coccyx, connected on the one hand by a series of branches to the spinal nervous system, and on the other hand, giving off an an irregulated series of branches to the viscera. The distinction is not absolute. The non-medulated fibers in the sympathetic system are derived from the axons of the sympathetic ganglion cells. Some fibers appear to contribute to the formation of the commissural cord. The morphology of the sympathetic system, from a consideration of its structure, functions, and development, there appears to be two separate structures represented in the sympathetic nervous system, the spinal and the sympathetic elements. It is certain that the cells and fibers of the sympathetic system possess a vital activity apart from their connection with the central nervous system. The phylogenetic relation to the sympathetic and cerebrospinal elements in the system, it is impossible to determine. It may be that the sympathetic system is representative of an ancient architecture independent of the cerebral nervous system, the materials of which are utilized for a modern nervous system. Examined in every light, it possesses features which effectually differentiate it from the cerebrospinal system. Page 77 through 78, The Science of Chiropractic, Volume 2, 1917, by B.J. Palmer. Dutton's Anatomy, 1892 edition, page 327 says, The sympathetic nerves control the circulation of the blood, respiration, nutrition, and all the various vital processes. They are the involuntary nerves 
not directly under the control of the human will. Page 79, The Science of Chiropractic, Volume 2, 1917, by B.J. Palmer. Werner's Spalteholtz Hand Atlas of Human Anatomy, Volume 3, page 763 says, Systema nervorum sympatheticum is formed, 1, by a chain of ganglia on each side of the spinal column, the ganglia being united with one another by vertical bundles of nerve fibers to form a longitudinal cord. A ganglion is a knot-like enlargement upon the course of a nerve and is supposed to be an independent center for the formation and dispensation of nerve power. Ganglion, they have been regarded as small brains or centers of nervous action, independent of the encephalon and intended exclusively for organic life. Ganglia are, the, are chiefly composed of vesicular neuron and appear to be con- concerned in the formation and dispensation of nerve power. Dunglison. Upon each spinal nerve is one of these and at many remote points are many centers. Center, a collection of nerve cells to which external impressions are carried and whence impulses are sent out. Reflex center, a part of gray nervous matter which transforms into a motor impulse, a sensory impulse it has received. Dunglison, 23rd edition. Where they are united with one another, giving to this system at least 62 independent brains. The anastomosis of nerves is referred to in Dunglison's dictionary, 23rd edition, page 754. They extend from the nervous centers to every part of the body, communicating with each other, forming plexuses, and occasionally ganglions. Pages 79 through 80, The Science of Chiropractic, Volume 2, 1917, by B.J. Palmer. A ganglion is a dividing area for desiccation of continuity fibers between brain and body. Because fibers spread at this point, area is larger than original bundle lying parallel to each other. This question of anastomosis is another subject for investigation and question. The circulation of blood is the anastomosis of this fluid. No matter where a digital on mechanical pressure may be placed or exist, it will immediately anastomose through surrounding channels. Study anatomy on this question. See illustrations they give. To show the folly, it is said that rheumatism is caused by uric acid in the blood. Suppose your rheumatism is localized in right foot, no other place. Same blood that is in right foot has made a complete circuit of balance of body in three minutes. Same uric acid in right foot is uric acid over entire body in three minutes. Why haven't we rheumatism all over the body, if uric acid was its cause? If this theory were so, disease would be a floating condition, here one minute, someplace else another. To show logic of chiropractic, nerves do not anastomose. Nerves are a direct continuity fiber from brain cell to tissue cell. Produce pressure upon a nerve 
and that impulse flow cannot anastomose through us through surrounding nerves for this reason pressure upon a nerve has a direct localizing effect wherever that nerve ends disease is stationary if it is in stomach then it remains in stomach because it is localized and remains permanently localized it is specific in and to that area is why you as a chiropractor can adjust for it because you are releasing pressure upon a specific nerve going exclusively to that localized area and no other disease is specific cause is specific correction is specific cure is specific yet there exist chiropractic schools that teach circulation of blood as the cause of disease there exist chiropractic schools that teach anastomosis of nerves because anatomies do and those same schools give adjustment upon nerves which have direct continuity and produce results which are in direct denial of both those premises they educationally teach one thing and ignorantly practice its opposite why because they want to conform to what everybody thinks believes and does that they may be in style with prevailing fashions regardless of whether they know right from wrong please note that while we make bold statements we quote sources for those statements that many chiropractors disagree in these conclusions is obvious that other chiropractic schools continue to teach the same old threadbare beliefs is also obvious that they may hold us to public censure is obvious but note in no way do they attempt to deny our statements because we quote our sources of authority gray's anatomy 15th edition page 798 says the sympathetic nervous system is 1 a series of ganglia connected together by intervening cords extending from the base of the skull to the coccyx one on each side of the middle line of the body partly in front and partly on each side of the vertebral column page 80 the signs of chiropractic volume 2 1917 by bj palmer the sympathetic nervous system presents a distinct contrast to the cranial and spinal nerve as well as to the whole central nervous system and that it included mainly the visceral and vascular nerves and although it has manifold communications with the cerebral spinal system it represents to a certain extent an independent system it is composed of a number of independent centers which form a chain on either side of the vertebral column that successive centers being united by short nerve cords The structure cell formed is known as the sympathetic trunk and the ganglia inserted in its course are the ganglia of the sympathetic trunk. The ganglia of the sympathetic trunk are connected with the neighboring cerebrospinal nerves by rami communicantes through which the cerebrospinal nerves receive sympathetic fibers and conversely cerebrospinal fibers enter the sympathetic nervous system. there being thus a mutual anastomosis 
The white rami fibers do not necessarily terminate in connection with the cells of the trunk ganglion with which they first come into connection, but may pass these and terminate in a higher or lower ganglion, or even in one of the ganglia of the sympathetic plexuses. From the ganglia of the sympathetic trunk, the branches of the sympathetic nervous system arises. They differ from those of the cerebral spinal system in many respects. Being in the first place of a grayish-white color, not pure white like the latter, since they consist mainly of non-medulated nerve fibers, and furthermore, they rarely have a straight course and they form long branches. Much oftener, almost without exception, they form sympathetic plexuses, which, especially in the region of the head, extend along the blood vessels, and especially the arteries, cerebrospinal fibers having a part in the formation of the plexuses intended for the viscera of the thorax and abdomen. Embedded in these sympathetic plexuses, especially the visceral ones, are numerous ganglia, some of which are very large and others microscopically small. They are known as ganglia of the sympathetic plexus and give rise to sympathetic fibers. Many small microscopic ganglia may also be found in the organs themselves, heart, eye, intestines. The sympathetic fibers, like those of the cerebrospinal system, are partly motor and partly sensory, and the system supplies practically the entire non-striated musculature of the body. The sympathetic trunk is a paired structure resting upon the anterior ventral surface of the vertebral column, almost parallel to the median plane. Each trunk consists of a number of ganglia, arranged at rather regular intervals and united into a chain by usually short connecting cords. Page 80 to 81, The Science of Chiropractic, Volume 2, 1917, by B.J. Palmer. Spinal localization is naturally fraught with great difficulty and, like cerebral localization, requires a most exact knowledge of anatomy. Much has been determined, much is inferred, but there is also much to be ascertained. It has been said by one of the ablest and moder of most modern investigators, Mills, that the value of a subject in spinal localization depends upon the exactness with which phenomena, cow, thistle, sparrow, are differentiated. Page 82, The Science of Chiropractic, Volume 2. 1917 by B.J. Palmer. The following definition of reflex action is from Dunglison's Dictionary, 22nd edition, page 953. Term applied to an action which consists in the reflection of an efferent nerve, of an impression conveyed to a nervous center by an afferent nerve. A reflex action is generally regarded to be one executed without consciousness. To make the above clearer, we refer to the author's, defini author's definition of reflection, page 953. Bending or turning backward of a ray of light, page 101. The Science of Chiropractic, volume 2, 1917, by B.J. Palmer. Medicine is materia, medica because it is based on matter. Grant they may know everything about organic structure of the body, 
Grant they may know much about function of various structures of the body. Fact remains they know little if anything about physiology of structures of the body because they know nothing about function of mental impulse flow through nervous system from brain to body flowing to those structures of the body. We quoted one text that flatly denies existence of any special or vital energy. The following is quoted from Osteopathic Health, Volume 2, Number 2, page 19. Stretched along both sides of the spine, within the cavity of the chest and abdomen, running the entire length of this backbone, are the ganglionated cords of the sympathetic nervous system. This wonderful automatic, or automaton, without consciousness, system, with its central powerhouse at the solar plexus, or abdominal brain, furnishes energy for all the involuntary activity of the body. The machinery that runs as well while we sleep as during wakeful activity. All the bodily organs, but not the voluntary muscular system, are sustained, operated, controlled, regulated by this sympathetic system. Its importance to life is obvious. Page 101, The Science of Chiropractic, Volume 2, 1917 by B.J. Palmer. Medical men constantly refer to voluntary and involuntary muscles, etc. They can understand that education is voluntary. They cannot understand how something which doesn't exist could be voluntary. Therefore, actions which occur, which they cannot explain, are involuntary. There is a voluntary educated action. There is a voluntary innate action. Each is voluntary, each to itself. As medical men refer to the conscious mind or subconscious mind, there is a conscious mind educated and a superconscious mind innate. In 1905, we first criticized sympathetic nervous system. We have been frequently misquoted on that criticism. It has been said, we said, there was no sympathetic nervous system. That is exactly what we said, and that isn't what we said at all. We said there could be no such thing as a sympathetic nervous system. We affirm existence of a nervous system. We deny this nervous system is governed in its physiological function by sympathy. It depends entirely upon how that sentence is emphasized as to whether we are correctly or incorrectly quoted. We said there could be no such thing as a sympathetic nervous system or there could be no such thing as a sympathetic nervous system. We deny sympathy and affirm nervous system. It was in 1906, 44 years ago, we published our first articles on this subject. What reasons we had we were oh, what reasons we had for questioning that which all anatomists and physiologists believed and, ta and thought, taught. First, they had no reason for believing it. Second, they admitted it was unworkable as they presented it which we have just quoted. Third, it wasn't common sense because man didn't work that way. <clears throat> the average layperson, if he gives it thought and run of medical students, are of the opinion that anatomy is fully known and is complete and is a completed subject. 
They are taught from books by teachers who study those books, and they accept all they are taught. Being a material subject, why should there be any doubt about what you see and feel? Anatomy, like some other phases of medical studies, contains many unknown enigmas. Each time a new anatomy is printed, it contains many revisions of former opinions, such as the changing of sympathetic nervous system of a few years ago to the now-called autonomic nervous system. Two great and very important fields in which practically little is known medically, even today, are neurology and serology. Admission which we have quoted from their standard authorities. In the field of function, nothing certain or logical is known about physiology because of their denial or admission of a truthful understanding of the innate intelligence abstract which flows through neurology. In admission, we have also quoted. As further proof of the foregoing statements, we quote the following from New Orleans State's newspaper, May 26, 1947. LSU professor is picked to revise Gray's Anatomy by Vernon Louvier. One of the outstanding books in the field of medicine, Gray's Anatomy, is being revised by Louisiana State University medical school professor. He is Charles DeMayo Charles He is Char, Dr. Charles Mayo Goss, who was appointed professor of anatomy at the school last February. Gray's Anatomy, the best known of all medical works and Bible of practically every medical student in the world, was written by a young English surgeon before he reached the age of 30. Death came at 34 to Dr. Henry Gray before he could realize the extent of his contribution to the world of medicine. Since the book was first published in 1858, it has been revised 24 times. Foremost authority today. In selecting Dr. Goss for the 25th revision, the publishing firm of Lea and Feebiger in Philadelphia is said to have chosen one of the foremost authorities in the study of the human body. Revision of the classic work will require almost a year. Dr. Goss will incorporate in the new printing all of the findings and developments in recent anatomical research that have occurred since Gray's was first published. Much of the new information I am preparing for the revision comes from my teaching experience, said the professor, but I will depend heavily on my friends whom I have asked for suggestions on correction or addition of material. Chest Surgery Stressed Chest surgery, which has been studied extensively in recent years and which has never been thoroughly covered in books on anatomy, will receive considerable attention in this revised text. Great strides in the experimental study of the nervous system have been made during the past few years, and Dr. Goss will attempt to clarify the relationship of these findings. The study of muscles, their anatomy and function, will be brought up to date in Dr. Goss's revised work. A prominent feature of the new edition will be some 25 illustrations by William Branks Stewart, head of the Department of Medical Illustration. These illustrations will depict some of the new scientific findings reported by Dr. Goss. <clears throat> Native of Illinois. Before his appointment to the LSU medical staff, Dr. Goss was professor of anatomy at the Medical College of Alabama, University of Alabama. 
The 48-year-old anatomy instructor is a native of Illinois and was graduated from the Yale, Yale University Medical School. What did seem to be the way man works? He puts his finger on a hot iron. Finger is jerked away. What went on and why? First, an impression of heat was picked up by an afferent nerve flow in finger. Where did it go? To brain, where mind interpreted it to being of burning heat and dangerous to welfare of tissue structure. As a result, constructive, intelligent understanding desire to save those structures from being burned. Hence, a responsive, adaptive, efferent impulse flow was sent down to jerk finger away to save tissues. All were reactions. All reactions were for a constructive purpose, hence intellectual. This portrayed direct connection between finger and brain, brain and finger. That which went in was different than that which came back. We could not conceive that man of one of the natural products of a wisdom greater than any other, ran as a perfect spiritual, mechanical, and chemical being as he was, was being run by a disorganized series of 129 generals, each independent from each other, each governing and directing a part, each apart from each other, each trying to be the sole governing power of an isolated section. Man was a totality unit, none of his parts being isolated from each other. He is one being directed, governed, and functioning from a single intellectual source, all parts united to one common harmonious whole. This might not be medically scientific, but it was common sense. As a result, we propose the theory of a direct brain cell to tissue cell efferent continuity a direct tissue cell to brain cell afferent continuity, a direct circuit continuity from brain cell to tissue cell, tissue cell to brain cell, through which flowed a direct circuit continuity of nerve force or mental energy. This was in conformity with the chiropractic principle and practice. It was upon this principle and practice chiropractic secured results. Break continuity of matter or energy, and you have death, paralysis, or dis-ease. Restore continuity or matter, restore continuity of matter or energy, and you have life and health. Upon this basis, chiropractic rises or falls, lives or dies. At this juncture, it is interesting to note that our profession split into two camps. First, those who were opportunists who believed that others be who believed what others believed, taught what others taught, and agreed with standard and accepted books on anatomy. These people in those chiropractic schools advertised they taught from standard and accepted and anatomical authorities and they drew towards themselves the type of student that wanted to know what others believed and taught. These people believed and taught one thing and practiced the chiropractic principle which denied it. Second, those who saw truth, facts, data, information, evidence, 
who had little regard for tradition if it was wrong, who were not afraid to think, teach, and practice something foreign to what others believed and had printed. It was in 1905, 46 years ago, we came forth with our theory of direct brain cell to tissue cell fiber continuity. That theory of existence of vertebrata was so reasonable, so consistently sound, that it took root in the mind of men. It became the, it became the foundation upon which the chiropractic premise rested. It became the basis upon which the chiropractic practice thrived and multiplied. We were growing so rapidly that we were a menace to medicine. This theory either had to be accepted as a theory or denied as a scientific fact. Dr. Kreil, one of their foremost and radically different medical researchers, in his labs in Cleveland, took up the challenge to prove it was untrue and could be so proved by science. In 1926, 21 years after we advocated the new theory of direct brain cell to tissue cell nerve fiber continuity, Dr. Kreil issued a book titled A Bipolar Theory of Living Processes. Being a researcher and a scientist, he found exactly what he found. He did not find one thing and report its opposite. He found there was a direct brain cell to tissue cell nerve fiber continuity. As a result, all anatomy since changed their premise of knowledge of neurology of the nervous system. In this book, Dr. Krause sets forth following bipolar theory. A. Man is a two-pole electric potential animal. B. The brain is one pole, the body the other. C. The two are connected by a direct continuity nerve fiber system. D. When the two are continuously connected and through them flows a continuous flow of electrical potential, man is well in all his parts. E. If man is sick, it is because there was a breakdown between continuous flow of electrical potential between the two poles, between brain and body. F. When this continuity quality flow of electrical potential is reestablished between brain and body through a continuity of nerve fiber, man can and will get well. G. The cause of all disease is because of this breakdown, because of interference to flow between one and the other. Being the scientist he was, Dr. Crowell was not contented to let the matter rest upon this theory. He then searched for and found location of interfering medium that was causing this breakdown that caused all disease. Where do you suppose he found it? The only place it could be. Where was that? Exactly where it was. Having found it, having written about it in his book, having now presented his research to the world, why didn't he proceed to correct it? You must remember, Dr. Kreil was an old man. He was the head of a very large, well-established hospital. He had an international reputation as a surgeon and practitioner. To enter the field of a practitioner on the new basis involved a complete change of his life's work, 
of thinking and practicing, a revolution of his hospital, an evolution of the practice of medicine, something which he, at his age, did not have the courage to face or attempt to establish. At any rate, our theory of 1905 was established as a matter of scientific research. We received advanced sheets of his new forthcoming book. We sent notification to our profession to secure copies at once. They did. The first edition was sold immediately. We did this because his book was almost a complete substantiation of the chiropractic principle in practice. We believe then, and have since been disillusioned, that if a medical man of renown and reputation were to endorse the chiropractic principle and practice, then chiropractors would believe it. We realize that if a chiropractor were to endorse and support a new evolutionary theory, medical men would deny it, but we did believe chiropractors would support it. Our realizations were futile. We realized, after all, that here was a well-known medical man supporting chiropractic, while chiropractors were supporting medicine. You tell us why. We can't. Then came Speransky, a basis for the theory of medicine. He again voiced convictions of Kreil. Then came Morat with his physiology of the nervous system. As a result, to date, of this thinking, reasoning, and researching upon the part of four people, modern and progressive anatomists are neurologically and physiologically changing their physical science of anatomy from a strictly materialistic study to one of straddling the fence, now calling it the autonomic nervous system, leading us to infer it is a more or less automatic system and takes care of itself. We say straddling the fence because they admit the physical and halfway admit the immaterial. When they go all the way, they will admit the chiropractic premise, after which they will, of necessity, be compelled to establish a philosophy for their conclusions. It is quite obvious that what we have said has two morals. First, that advancement in research comes from finding imponderables, things that are impossible and finding the sound and correct solution for them. Second, that there are two kinds of people who deal with imponderables, things that are impossible, those that accept them as they are and live with them, and those who seek correct solution for them. For the moment, let us discuss the latter. The vast majority are contended, satisfied. They cater to the present whims of the present group mind. This group will fight to retain a tenacious hold on present outlooks, services, and deliveries. Medical men fight to keep medicine alive, even though they admit its failures to get sick people well, even though they admit their teachings fallacious and impossible. To this medical group, there is a large chiropractic group mind who sooner or later find their patients have been educated to medicine, insist upon having treatments, pills, enemas, baths, massage, having their bellies tickled and their backs rubbed, and too frequently, rather than educate them otherwise, they give the sick what they want, as they want it, when they want it. This group is satisfied to make a living, by fair means or foul. 
So, too, do practically all so-called chiropractic schools teach what they find people believe in, such as germs cause tuberculosis, give insulin for diabetes, punch all up and down the back, etc. They teach medical anatomy, medical physiology, medical treatments. About the only issue some of this group clings to that is chiropractic is a ghost-like remnant of its philosophy. Why? Because it is a better selling argument, and by so doing draws in more patients than any other. We know one chiropractic college which teaches no philosophy. Ask their graduates why they treat the backbone, and they look starry-eyed to you that you would ask such a question. Press the question, and they stammer and possibly say, because it stimulates the blood and nerves. To such, there is always a reaction when they are sold chiropractic and delivered medicine. This group are opportunists, having little courage of any conviction. The small minority realize imponderables, and when taught correct and sound solution of those problems, set forth like disciples, set forth like disciples of a new gospel, to go on the highways and byways and preach and practice the better way. They refuse to cater to present whims of what the present-day group mind wants. This group, even though small, strenuously labor to develop future outlooks, services, and deliveries. This group of chiropractors develop, defend, preserve, and educate people of today out of medicine into the new philosophy, science, and art of chiropractic of tomorrow. This small group includes all great names of history, men who have made history, such names as Watts, Newton, Fulton, Stevenson, Holland, Wright Brothers, Westinghouse, Marconi, Teslas, Franklin, Edison, Ford, D.D. Palmer, ad infinitum. Each of these in his day and in his way brought forth new ideas, new services, thinking ahead of their fellow men. They took in ponderables and developed better ways to do everyday common things. What would be reaction of these men if they could return to earth today and see multitudinous ways in which their scoffed at ideas had been used? Suppose any or all had refused to battle human storms of protest against their ideas. Suppose they had laid down, become opportunist, and refused to go on. Would you or we be having their comforts today? Sooner or later, each of us is called upon to face this battle within ourselves and answer which of these roads we travel. Shall we become a follower of the satisfied group? Shall we be a battler for a future service which the vast group ridicule? We faced that issue when a boy of 16. We found ourselves. We have never hesitated from that day to this, to work for the future. Will you? Only you can answer that question.